Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the house. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasek. And I'm Lori Jennings. In today's episode, we learn about the tragic disappearance and ultimate unsolved murder of Molly Bish, a 16-year-old high school student who vanished from her job as a lifeguard in her hometown of Warren, Massachusetts. Molly Bish was last seen on the morning of June 27, 2000, as her mother dropped her off for work, never in a million years thinking that this would be the last time she would ever see her daughter. Molly's case is featured in the state of Massachusetts' new deck of playing cards. They just released their first set of cold case playing cards this February. As always, we would love to see the day when there are no faces to put on the cold case playing cards. But until that day comes, we will continue telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. Help us deal justice for Molly Bish. This is Episode 3, The Molly Bish Case, Queen of Spades, Massachusetts Dead. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us to the rural, small town of Warren, where a young teen meets up with unforeseen evil in the Bay State. John and Maggie Bish met and fell in love while John was in Michigan attending the Orchard Lake Seminary. John's roommate's twin sister was Maggie's best friend. The couple later attended Wayne State University and settled down in Detroit. There, John worked at a methadone clinic as a counselor. In 1977, the couple were preparing to have their first child, Heather. I am Heather Bish. 
I am the oldest sister of Molly Bish. I was born in Detroit, in Michigan. First settled outside of Detroit in a suburb. And then when I was a toddler, a woman was murdered down the street from, from where my parents lived, and she was pregnant. And it just made my mom nervous about, you know, that she had sort of second thoughts about living so close to the city. And my dad kept bragging about this small town he was from and how safe it was and how, um, yeah, some sort of Norman Rockwell-ish, you know, everybody knew everybody and took care of each other. And very, very shortly after they moved to Massachusetts, they found out they were pregnant with my brother. The small town they moved to was Warren, which is located in central Massachusetts, about 70 miles west of Boston. We talked to Marilyn Coltley, who grew up in Warren and went to high school with Molly's father, John. I go back to being in high school with John Bish. And it's a small town that we live in. And John, of course, was a very happy soul. And it's being a small school, everybody was friends forever. John was an only child, so he doesn't have a lot of family around, but he wanted to move back to West Warren is where he lived. John was ecstatic to be back in his hometown and near his mom and friends he grew up with. Here's Molly's sister, Heather. We didn't have much family here. So a lot of the people that we grew up with had cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and this like rich for a big family and, and, and we didn't have that. So we have friends that are very much like family to us. You know, everything was so familiar and, and feeling like, you know, we were really safe. We didn't really lock our doors. We felt like we knew our neighbors. A little bit of that feeling of everybody knows everybody. John Jr. was born about six months after the Bishes moved to Warren. Heather was a thriving toddler, and John Sr. started his career as a probation officer. He was really proud of the work that he did in, in that context. And, you know, I think he was a good probation officer by all accounts. He was really into this position because he thought as sort of a recovery. You know, he could kind of get people when they're at their lowest and most vulnerable and sort of help them find their way back. My dad was really a counselor at heart. On August 2nd, 1983, Molly Bish was born and officially completed the Bish family. For her third and final child, Maggie wanted to give birth at home, and so Heather got to be there when her baby sister was born. So I actually was able to watch Molly be born when I was six. She was born in my parents' bedroom, and like not really quite understanding what exactly was happening, but then she was there, and like then she was like my baby, and I was like a queen sister, like, okay. I'm in charge. This is my baby. This is how things are going to go. And Molly, you know, was six years younger than me. My brother's three years. So we're kind of like an even-ish three years between us. Marilyn not only grew up with Molly's father, John, but she also was a teacher. And she ended up teaching all three of the Bish children, starting with Molly's older sister, Heather. Actually, I was teaching sixth grade when Heather got to, to school. She was the oldest. And her greeting to me was, so can I call you Marilyn because my mother and father do? And I said, yes, the last day of school when you're leaving, you can call me Marilyn. And probably that was the highlight of her year, just, you know, waiting to get out so she could shout goodbye, Marilyn. Then a couple years later, I was teaching fifth grade and had John Jr. He was into sports. If it was about sports, that's where his interests were. And when Molly came to fifth grade, she was very quiet in school. But, you know, again, it, it's a small school. Everybody was friends. She 
had her little clique of girls that she was friendliest with, I guess. You know, she liked to make sure everybody had pencils or colored pencils, make sure they had everything they needed because she knew she had it. If they didn't bring it from home, she'd share her snacks. That was, <laughs> she did do that. Because her mother worked at Sturbridge Village, which it's a model village of an 1850 society. And Maggie worked in the, in the bakery there and they make the best cookies that come out of Massachusetts, probably still to this day. I don't know. She would come to school and, you know, have these really neat snacks. And every day I'd say, Ma, what did mom bring for us? And she got to the point where one day she just handed me a bag of cookies, like, get off my case. You know, I'm not going to share, but I'll, I'll give you my, give you your own. Marilyn remembers how much Molly wanted to be like her older brother, John. John was very caring about Molly. He always included her. And Molly looked up to John a whole lot. She liked the, the friends that he had. She liked having friends around. She liked doing the things that he did. So he was her hero. The Biss children were very close with one another, but their personalities were very distinct. Heather shares with us the family dynamics. We were all very close. We went to each other's games. I was a horse person, so they went to my horse shows. And I'm like sort of academic person. I, I mean, I, all, I can do sports like horseback riding and kayaking. Like I was never, you know, an athlete in that way. And John particularly, but Molly wanted to emulate him. So she wanted to play with ducks and kick the soccer ball and play all the sports he played and go swimming and do all the things. But she also wanted me to play Barbies with her all the time and listen to my music and show her this and show her that. And we fought when we got sick of playing with her and entertaining her. You know, again, I was that six years older. So, you know, she was really interesting because her traits or her characteristic things she liked were like a mashup of John and I. So that, that part was really fun that she was getting older to see. Here's Kate Christensen. She's a childhood friend of Molly's. She and Molly met when they were about five years old. And although they went to different elementary schools, their friendship blossomed. She went to Warren Elementary and I went to West Brookfield Elementary. But being our parents, we friended each other because they also came from Michigan. My dad's from Michigan. John and Maggie and my parents became friends. I'll never forget how we were young, but we were allowed to be on the school ski group at a young age because the principal also was friends of the family because our parents worked with the school. So we got to join the ski club early. And that's when I became close with Molly as well as we played basketball. I don't know why it was combined, but it was combined when we were young. And my dad was the coach. When it was time for middle school, Kate and Molly finally got to go to school together. Kate says there are so many memories, it's hard to tell just one. We had a little movie theater near us, and that was that was a big night out here to go to Friendly's and to mo- the movies. And then the town's over. We also spent a lot of times just down at the basketball court. I remember once we were told, told if we dyed our hair and didn't wear the right colored socks, which was white or black, we were going to be in a little bit of trouble. So me me and Molly had a little talk and we both went home and we we both dyed our bangs bright blue and wore like Argyle socks to the basketball game. And (laughs) we we got in a little bit of like trouble. But, you know, at the end of the day, there wasn't like, how much can you get in for that kind of stuff? Molly had a lot of friends and she was fun, athletic and popular. Again, here's Heather, Molly's sister. 
Molly was very much loved her friends. She was very fun and loved pranks, loved joking, loved like funny movies like Forrest Gump and uh, any Adam Sandler movies or that Rod Schneider. That that was the fun of Molly. <laughs> she just she connected with so many people and in so many different ways. Here's Molly's friend Kate again. She enjoyed living and she was a goofball. We were always together, you know, there was always like a group of us that were kind of together. And if we weren't, it was okay and kind of met up later. And, you know, it just was a lot of sports, a lot of getting cars and dating. You know, it just, we grew up. She not only was funny, but she was extremely caring. She was also, could be extremely serious and sit with you if you were struggling. And that's something I admired about her because not everyone was able to be that real. The way she was raised, also, she was given some extremely great morals and values that she kind of gave, gave to everyone else, too, just by being in her presence. Molly loved kids, and she was ecstatic when her older sister, Heather, had her niece, Michaela, on July 22, 1999. Her sister, who's playing, too, is having a baby, was kind of exciting. Like, oh, this is like, we can play real house with this baby. I don't have to wait 10 years before this happens. Like, this is going to be fun. So, yeah, Molly was her godmother, and she very much loves being an aunt. Kate remembers when Michaela was born, and Molly's priorities definitely shifted. When her niece was born, she was, she changed in a sense where she was just there more and didn't want to hang sometimes. You know, she she preferred to be with with Michaela and her sister and just kind of be part of the that process. And I didn't have that in my life. Being around Kayla, who was a little tigger um, at the time, but was it was a joy, but also it was nice to be part of in a way. Of, I remember holding her when she was little and all of that. The summer of 2000 started off pretty good for Molly. It was the summer before her senior year. She had a niece she adored, as well as a new boyfriend, Stephen. She also had just secured a summer job as a lifeguard at Commons Pond in Warren. Her brother, John Jr., had been a lifeguard there before her for three years. Her friend Kate remembers how excited Molly was to have this new job. She was so proud of that license that she had gotten and, you know, all the time she spent in the pool to finally, like, kind of take over her brother's job. We were in a town where getting a job in, in general was hard, but getting a job working, taking care of the, the Trinity's children was a hard job to get and also an honor and she took it as such and that's where she was you know it was just eight days in. Molly had her driver's license but Massachusetts state law prevents first-year drivers from driving alone so Molly's mom Maggie would drive her to work. Monday June 26 2000. Molly was finishing up her first week as a lifeguard at Commons Pond. While dropping her off Her mom, Maggie, noticed a man with a mustache sitting in a white car smoking a cigarette in the parking lot. She had an uneasy feeling. The stranger in the car didn't nod or greet her with a cordial smile like she was accustomed to in their close-knit small town. According to Maggie, she walked Molly down to the beach that day to be extra cautious. She assumed when she got back to the car, the man would be gone but he was still sitting there. Maggie made eye contact, hoping for reassurance, but that's not what she got. Maggie is quoted in several articles as saying, 
he returns the stare and just boldly stares at me and just kept smoking and he didn't even seem to care. Maggie waited for the man to leave before she left. She made a mental note of this strange man in her mind, never imagining what was to come. Tuesday, June 27, 2000. Molly was to be at work at 10 a.m., but she wanted to stop over at her sister Heather's house to see her niece, Michaela. It had been a couple of days since Molly had seen her niece and sister. Molly and her mom were leaving early so they could stop by and make a quick visit. Heather remembers getting to see Molly that morning. So my my mom and Molly stopped at my house in the morning before nine, I think. And I was like, oh, mom, can you get me a coffee downtown? Because the coffee downtown is like crack. (laughs) So good. Um, But they just stayed for a little bit. And then I went about, you know, taking a shower, getting ready. I was going, going to my friend's house who lived in the same town, not far from the pond and not far from the police station. So still in Warren. She lived in Worcester, but her mom had a house there, and they had an in-ground pool, and we were just going to swim at my mom's house that day. My mom was, you know, bugging out. Come on, come on, we gotta go. You're gonna be late. And um, it was all because she was blowing kisses into Michaela's belly. You know that that she was running five minutes behind. Tuesday morning, 9:50 a.m. Although they were running a little behind, before going directly to Commons Pond. Maggie and Molly stopped off at a convenience store. Maggie and Molly were seen on surveillance camera there. They arrived at Commons Pond just before 10 a.m. for Molly's eighth day of work. Maggie remembers the parking lot being empty, except for a dump truck that was dropping off sand for the beach. She saw no signs of the stranger from the day before or his white car, so she felt safe to drop her daughter off. Molly got out of the car and waved to her mom and Maggie watched as her daughter walked off to begin her lifeguarding shift. Around 10.20 a.m., a mom had arrived at the pond with her children for some swimming lessons. She noticed Molly was not on duty and reported it to Molly's boss, the park commissioner. For some reason, he did not notify the police for more than an hour. At about 11.45, the police arrived at Commons Pond and seeing no sign of a struggle, assumed Molly left her post to go hang out with friends or perhaps meet up with her boyfriend. But three hours later, Molly was still nowhere to be seen. Precious time is being lost. Again, here's Heather, Molly's sister. Because the police did not secure the crime scene or even respond to the crime for three hours, the people that were at the swimming lessons when were at the pond were trampling the crime scene. When she was working at the pond, they didn't have a lifeguard chair. She was sitting in a like a beach chair, and she had a big first aid kit that looked like a sort of a fishing kit that she'd pop her feet on top of and take her little Adidas shoes off. And so that's how everything was left. Debatable whether the first aid kit was opened or not. Meanwhile, back home, Maggie Bish finally received a phone call from the local police that afternoon telling her Molly had not been on duty all day and that her belongings were left on the beach. Maggie immediately rushed to the pond. So I was basically like going out the door when my mom called me at one o'clock and was like, Molly's missing. She's not at the pond. And I was like, that sounds weird. Somebody must have something mixed up. So I said, okay, I'll meet you at the pond. So, you know, I'm stopping on 11 month old in and, and driving. And when I get to the center of town, you can go straight through town or you can take a right. And that right will lead you to the pond. 
my mother was frantically driving up from that center of town. And I was like, oh, shit. I could tell she was frantic. And she's like yelling out the window at me. So I just park at the police station. And I'm getting my kid out. And my mom's like, something's wrong, something's wrong. And she's kind of very hysterical. And we go into the police station. And my mom's like, I want the case called. I want you to find my husband. The police officer on duty comes out. And he says, she's probably just with her friend. So I say, did you check with her friends? And he's like, no. And I said, oh, well, she really wouldn't have gone anywhere without her shoes on. And he kind of just looks at me. The Bish family knew their daughter was responsible and would never leave her lifeguard station unattended. More importantly, Molly's shoes were left behind. That was telling. When we got there and I told the police that her shoes were there, that's when I knew. You know, something was critically wrong because I knew my sister did not walk around without shoes on. Like, she was never one of those people that, like, do the grounding of the earth or feel the grass in their toes or anything. She, like, did not like the feeling of icky feet, really, is what we called it. I'm telling you, she wouldn't have gone anywhere without her shoes on and nobody's listening to me. My sister's gone, and I feel like my voice is just disappearing in the chaos and nothing I say matters. And now, meanwhile, my mom had all her stuff there. Her shoes are there. Her police radio, everything's there. Heather, she's not there. And so my mom knows something's wrong. Like, I didn't think this could really happen either. I don't think any of us really thought, you know, someone's going to come into our community and take a 16-year-old kid away, and we're never going to see her again. And I just don't think we believe in that kind of level of, of evil in the world. Here's Molly's friend Kate again woke up to the phone ringing and ringing and ringing. It was my dad. just remember picking up my phone. I remember it being painted in sparkles because I had this nail polish that I painted everything with. And him saying, I have a serious question. So have you seen Molly? They don't know where she is right now. Upon hearing this news from her father that Molly is missing, Kate immediately jumped out of bed and drove to a friend's house who also lived near Commons Pond. I pulled into my friend Troy's driveway, and he met me. And it was like one by one, everybody that she could have been with was there. And that's when the panic set in, like within hours. It was just clear something was very, very wrong. Here's Marilyn again. She was at her sister's house that afternoon, which is very close to the pond. We were sitting outside. I really don't remember what time it was, but the siren started and police car. She lives on a little dead end street right before the pond. And we could see cruisers and fire trucks and whatever going down. And I said, well, I'm out of here. I had to go meet someone in another town. I'd really like to know. So I came back into town and they wouldn't even let me go down the street because, you know, with everything going on and and it was probably three, three o'clock or four o'clock by now. They said, did something happen to one of the kids? And he said, do you know Molly Bish? And I knew Molly was a lifeguard. And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, she's missing. I said, okay, can I just, can I go, go to my sister's house? So I parked at my sister's house and I walked right down to the pond where there were people and the police were there and everybody was Dumbfounded, I guess, is a good word. Maggie and John were not there at the time. They had gone with the police down to the police station. 
Heather and John Jr. were there. You know, I just held on to Heather for a little while. She was, I don't know, I don't know if there's even words to describe what goes on, but she was scared, totally scared. And and everybody was just waiting. What could have happened? What should we do? It was a hot summer day. The clouds were coming in, thunder rumbling. And then police helicopters going over were rumbling, scary. I just, I walked back to my sister's house to get some sweatshirts or something because it was, it was starting to rain a little bit and whatever. And police were guarding the gate by then and they didn't want to let me through. But we, we had a conversation and they, they let me through. Definitely the state police were in control by now. They were, you know, they were the ones giving direction. To give you an idea visually, we asked what the pond area was like during June of 2000. From our understanding, the beach area where Molly's lifeguard chair was stationed at could not be seen from the parking lot. Also located nearby this area was a cemetery and woods are in the backdrop. At first, efforts to find Molly were focused on the body of water, thinking she may have drowned. The fire department felt like the police department weren't doing anything, and so they began diving and assumed she had drowned. Again, knowing Molly, Molly was a strong swimmer, like she was the strongest woman in her lifeguard class. So that seemed kind of funny. And also, my sister did not like to swim in the pond. She would not, like, she just didn't have that, I'm going to go swim, you know, eight laps on a Tuesday of my summer vacation. That was not Molly. I remember by three o'clock, I, you know, my father came and he thought she was drowned. I'm like, Dad, shaking my dad, like, she's not your dad. You're not listening to me. Not in that pond. Like something's wrong. Like I need you to come back to reality and help me figure this out. I don't know what to do. And none of these people are doing the right thing. And no one's listening to me. As Heather expected, Molly's body was not recovered in Commons Pond. Her sister had not been in the water. I remember them taking their parents away from the pond, not really knowing what's going on, not knowing what to do. Uh, at some point, my husband's parents came and took Michaela. And I remember having to leave there thinking like, holy, how am I? How am I leaving this place? Like, how can I leave this place without my sister? As evening was approaching, Marilyn had left the pond area to go to Maggie and John Bish's house. I wanted to see John and Maggie before I went home. So it was dark. It was probably eight o'clock. And I went down to their house and I walked in and just, you know, I gave John a hug and I said, John, what can I do? I'm not sure he even answered a long time. I just remember standing and holding him for a long time. There was nothing. Being the person I am, I said, well, I have to do something. At least I can answer the phone because the media was calling and the missing children center was calling and, and it was pretty chaotic. And I thought if just one person answered the phone, maybe that would help. So I manned the phone. It went on and on and on that way for days. Soon after Molly's disappearance, a couple witnesses came forward. One man said that he saw the white car parked that morning near the cemetery. Here's Heather Bish. What's consistent was the white car being seen in different areas of town. So there was the cemetery worker who saw it at the cemetery, and that car was seen by a couple different people. And the cemetery is significant because it sits, like, behind the pond, but you could park there, sort of walk this little path, Someone could be sitting up there waiting, for sure, and not be noticed by anyone coming into the pond because they could be parked at the cemetery. So we've, we're pretty sure that she was taken out through the cemetery. In the first 
month or a few weeks, like it was so beyond what anyone expects. The police told us not to go on the media. And then my parents had conversations with parents that had missing children from across the country. And they're like, no, get on the news now. A picture is a one in six recovery tool. At that time, my parents were scrambling for a photo. We didn't have that accessibility that we have now. Searches were being conducted. Molly's case received national media attention, but despite all these efforts, there was no sign of Molly. As we've said in previous episodes, there's no guide on what to do when your child goes missing. The Bish family were doing their best to keep the search going for Molly. Molly's disappearance happened prior to social media, so the family utilized an email list, sending out more than 35,000 emails and creating a website dedicated to finding Molly. Also, within months of Molly's disappearance, Maggie and John Bish established the Molly Bish Foundation. It was created to spread the knowledge and understanding of child and family safety and to promote legislative reform. Even with their own child missing, they created an organization to help prevent other such tragedies while their own search continued for their daughter, Molly. In those short weeks that we were sort of sequestered at our house, while they were conducting searches and, and stuff for Molly, so that's really how it started. And, you know, they needed a, a place to focus their energy. They were scared and terrified and sad, and it definitely helped them think in a positive way, you know, that they were, they were going to be helping somebody else. In March of 2001, which was about nine months after Molly's disappearance, a sketch of the man Molly's mom remembered seeing the day before her disappearance was done by a well-known sketch artist, Jean Boylan. She had previously done sketches for the Unabomber and the Polly Kloss case. Here's Molly's friend, Kate. I was there when the Unabomber lady did the sketch. She sat there and just talked to Mag. She, like, talked forever. And she never, like, showed her anything. You know, she just talked to her. And then she flipped around the picture. Maggie's face and, like, that situation in that moment was just like, yeah, that's him. She was staring right back at him. Despite releasing the sketch, no leads led to her abductor. The community of Warren would be forever changed. Most people from central Massachusetts around that area can tell you that where they were when they heard Molly disappeared or they can tell you that their life critically changed that summer because they weren't able to ride their bikes to the local pond or they weren't able to be a lifeguard or their mom came to work with them every day. So I do think that that collective trauma is really a a thing for us in, in central Massachusetts with Molly's case. What would have been Molly's senior year came and went without Molly. Molly's friends in the community of Warren were still in mourning on what should have been her graduation day. Unfortunately, school officials would not allow Molly's name to be called out during the ceremony alongside the rest of her classmates. Kate remembers she and her classmates taking control of the situation to honor their friend. They didn't allow, because she was still missing, for an honorary diploma. So when her name was supposed to be called, we had the person that was supposed to go kind of wait. And we weren't supposed to, but me and I don't know if it was Christina, me and someone else held up a dragonfly flag. It's a huge, you know, like a flag you would hang on your house. It's a representation of Molly. We we made sure we all had our buttons on just to give her honor. Years went by and there were still no leads on Molly. 
What does the community do during this time? Molly's friend, Kate. In those first few years, we also still celebrated her birthday, had the cake and the whole nine up at her house like we normally would. I think we all kind of got out of here. I don't know how else to put it. I never felt very safe afterwards. I at least, and I know many of our friends, I went to the University of Vermont, and as soon as I could leave after graduation, I was up there. And I know many of our friends had posters in the back of our cars and literally would hang up flyers the whole way down to Tennessee to, you know, Canadian borders. You know, we never stopped looking. In 1993, about 10 miles away in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, seven years before Molly disappeared, a 10-year-old girl, Holly Peranium, vanished from her grandparents' house. Her body was found two months later. Molly was 10 years old when Holly was murdered. Hauntingly, it was discovered that Molly Bish had written a letter to Holly's family after Holly's disappearance. Here's Marilyn to explain. When Molly went missing, the Peranian family, who John and Maggie didn't know before that time, came, you know, people just came. They just came together, whether they had something similar or something, they just needed to be together. And her her grandmother, whose house Holly was at, came and she had a letter, the letter, and Maggie still has it, that, that Molly had written. This is an excerpt from Molly Bish's letter. I'm very sorry. I wish I could make it up to you. Holly is a very pretty girl. She's almost as tall as me. I wish I knew Holly. I hope they find her. Holly, she was taken in the summer, and she was found that October. Her remains, her body, were found by a hunter. Holly's case has also never been solved. She is featured in the Massachusetts new set of cold case playing cards, and her picture and case info is on the two of hearts. No official connection has ever been made between the two girls. Nearly two and a half years passed since Molly's disappearance with no leads on her whereabouts. Then, in November of 2002, a discovery was made by a hunter. He had seen a blue tattered bathing suit in the woods. However, he didn't tell anyone about this until May of 2003. He was at a bar with a guy, a local police officer who had been on duty when Holly Cranian disappeared in 1993. So he was very familiar with that case, was familiar with our case. So he said, bring me to this bathing suit. They went to the bathing suit. They got the police to come finally. I think it took like 24 hours to get the state police there. Meanwhile, the media had jumped on it. My friend, Kathy Kern, got video footage of the pieces of this blue bathing suit. And Molly had a blue bathing suit on. The bathing suit was located in a heavily wooded area, supposedly only really known to local hunters. The bathing suit was sent to the crime lab, and this triggered a new round of intensive ground searches. Shortly after that, it was a grid-by-grid search of 50 acres. Really remarkable search that was designed by a forensic anthropologist and every man that they could get. According to the Massachusetts State Police, the search for Molly Bish was the largest and most expensive search for a missing person ever conducted in their state. On June 3rd, an arm bone was found. Around the same area the bathing suit had been located, and more bones were being unearthed. And it was on June 7th that they found her skull, and they were able to identify her via dental records. We've got some 
small items that have some unidentified DNA on them that we're trying to locate the person. So the person is not in CODIS. On June 9, 2003, investigators confirmed that the skeletal remains they were able to recover were in fact 16-year-old Molly Bish. Her remains were uncovered in the woods over many acres in Palmer, Massachusetts, in a place called Whiskey Hill. She was ultimately only three miles from her family home and five miles from where she was abducted. Only 26 of her bones were recovered in the tattered bathing suit nearby. A cause of death was not determined. However, investigators surmised Molly was murdered and her remains were buried. You have a missing child. You are literally frightened that they're tied up. They're hungry, they're sad, they're scared, they're cold, they're lonely, they're hurt. And you can't find them. And that is madness to any person experiencing that. So when you do recover a body, I think that there is a certain amount of closure. Like, you don't have to fear that someone's raping your kids in the mountains. It took three years to finally find Molly, and now her family was able to lay her to rest. The Bish family held a funeral service for Molly on August 2nd, 2003, what was supposed to be her 20th birthday. persons of interest in this case, DNA testing and boxes of evidence, but we still don't know who killed Molly or why. There have been several names associated with Molly's case, and only one person of interest has been named by police. The man in the white car who was lurking at the pond the day before, convicted killer Rodney Stanger, and many others have been eyed in the case. Investigators are hopeful that advances in DNA technology will help them come up with a profile of Molly's killer. Molly's family says what keeps them up at night is the fact that that person is still out there and may harm someone again. Kathy Curran, Five Investigates. Gerald Battistoni was linked to Molly's murder by a private investigator in 2011. Gerald had frequented the area where Molly's body was found and was a convicted sex offender. His victim lived near Commons Pond. She was the daughter of a woman he was dating in the 90s. The teenager told investigators she was raped by him as many as a hundred times. This lead was only circumstantial. His ex-wife said he was driving a car a white car that day in Warren, and he, you know, again, has a history of rapes, and and he, so the girl that, his, the daughter that he was obsessed with lived um, right by the cemetery, which is where they, they believe this white vehicle was waiting for Molly on the day she was abducted, so. There's a lot of compelling circumstantial evidence with, with Gerald Battistoni. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anyone could be convicted on circumstantial evidence, it should be him. The most updated suspect came in June 2021. Investigators identified yet a new person of interest as Francis Frank P. Sumner. They received several tips about him through the years. He was a convicted rapist and kidnapper. He had owned and operated automobile repair shops in Spencer, Leicester, and Worcester areas. Court records show he kidnapped and raped a 21-year-old woman who went to his business to have her car repaired in 1981. When the police came forward with Frank Sumner, not someone I had ever found, but someone that they had found, even though he was a level two sex offender and committed rape and kidnapping, he never was put in CODIS. He had been paroled in 1998. 
two years prior to Molly's disappearance. He also resembled the sketch in Molly's case. He died in 2016. Investigators traveled to an Ohio prison to collect a DNA sample from Francis Sumner's son. Results have not yet been concluded. As of now, no arrests have ever been made in Molly's case. No answers as to who is responsible. Even with some of the persons of interest having died, Heather says it's still important to have answers. I'm expecting to feel better when I find out who killed my sister. I'm hopeful. When we talk about closure, I mean, there are different aspects of closure, but I don't think anyone of us who suffered a crime like this has closure until their own death. That loss isn't a big hole in their life. We can cover the little piece of the hole where I know where Molly isn't hurting or scared anymore. Maybe we'll solve this and we'll know that this guy isn't out there hurting kids because he's dead and we've got him. The search continues to bring justice to Molly Bish. I always wonder what she would have done. And I don't think it would have been small. Her impact already, clearly, like, when I think of her, she saves kids' lives today. That's how I I like to think of it, because she does. You can't have someone like that. They don't disappear from your days. They become part of your reason to kind of, hopefully, by getting some justice now, because that's the only thing we can get. But prior to that, it was everything we could get we were going to try. And I can say that that's probably true of everyone that knew her, because she was that kind of person that would have done the same for her friends. Molly's niece, Michaela, who was only 11 months old at the time of Molly's abduction, is now 22 years old today. She never got to know her aunt, who truly loved her niece, and they were on the track to a beautiful relationship. Here's Michaela, who shares with us a poem she had written for her Aunt Molly on the 16th anniversary of Molly's disappearance. I didn't get one. One of those buy-you shoes, buy-you clothes a friendlier version of your mom. One of those get you out of trouble, stand up to others, take pictures at your prom. And I hear people say, you're beautiful, athletic, and exactly like her. You're a lifeguard, a goofy one, a shadowed memory, and she would be proud of who you are. Though I wouldn't know. I was cradled in her arms, listened to sweet hums, but grew up in replacement ones. I got robbed of what others had. That's just the way my life goes. Instead of calling and not on the phone, I got stories, telltales, and a dragonfly sitting on my nose. Authorities have asked anyone with information about Molly's murder or possible suspects to call the anonymous tip line at 508 508- Four five three seven five seven five. Heather Bish is currently working on a familial DNA bill that is making its way through the state legislature. If passed, Bill S-1595 would add cutting-edge technology to help solving crimes. Presently, forensic labs cannot run familial DNA because it is not in the state statute of Massachusetts. The bill would open this pathway for testing. Although testing can provide answers for law enforcement and victims' families, It is also extremely important that this process is highly regulated, which is also outlined in Heather's bill. And it's basically putting a protocol or a process in place. So I'm very hopeful. And if there's anybody listening from Massachusetts, 
please call your legislators and let them know that you support S1595 and you hope that they will too. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Dealing Justice. Molly Bish's case, like every case and every person that goes missing or is murdered, is just horrifying. And the fact that she went to do a job and ended up disappearing and then ultimately being murdered is just heartbreaking. Especially in a small, safe town where everybody did feel safe. Absolutely. Let's talk about the suspects. You want to kick us off? Yes. And, you know, this is horrible because one thing I do want to say is that a lot of people do want to connect the Holly Peranian and Molly Bish cases together because then that would mean, like Heather said, that there's just one person responsible for both those young girls' murders. But when you get a look at these names that have come up through private investigators and one from police and just other sources where people are connecting these names, it's like there's several evil people that lurk around them. Well, I think that's one of the things that we found out in these cases. It's like, Christy Luna that we did last season. I think it was absolutely mind-blowing that when you looked at how many sex offenders, rapists, kidnappers, child molesters that were in such a small radius. That too, it was a small town, a small radius, and there was that many of them. It really is eye-opening to see how many of those types of people are around all of us, you know, and that you don't even know it. It's like sharks in the water. You'd be shocked to know how many are just there. Yes, exactly. So the first one was Rodney Stanger. Like we said, a lot of them can resemble the sketch. No matter which way you look at it, you can just see resemblance. But you and I, those of us that get involved in true crime, you and I often see things differently. When I look at that, I think there's there's no way any of those people to me were like, oh, that's him. That looks just like him. I mean... In their own way, they could, but I, I don't know. To me, it wasn't like, oh, that's that's who it is. So the sketch was of the man that Molly's mom saw in the car. Right. But to be clear, we don't even know for sure that the man in the car is, is the person that... That's a good point. It could just be a crazy coincidence. And a mother's intuition just tries to go back desperately and say, what was different? Why would my daughter disappear? Okay, this was different. You're right. I mean, I guess I just never thought about that. I automatically thought a mom really knows her intuition, and I go with that. But you're right. It's not 100% scientific a fact. Yeah. Like I said, how many times have I grabbed my kids and just went, I don't feel good about that? The be in the minds of these parents, you spend your time going, was it him? Was it him? Was it her? Was it this person? Was it that person? Was it this? Was it this scenario? To just keep going over in your mind, and it never goes away. Exactly. Rodney Stanger had a little bit of a background here, and he also had the ability because he lived near Warren, about 14 miles away in Southbridge at the time of Molly's disappearance. Now, this gets interesting because he also lived near the YMCA where Molly took her lifeguard certification classes, which was actually located in Southbridge on the same street, just a few blocks away from Rodney's home. So in addition to this, he was known to visit Commons Pond to go fishing, and he also hunted in the area near the Palmer-Warren border. So that's where Bish's remains were actually found. So he was known to, like, hunt there, and that was according to his ex-wife, Deborah. So you can get lost in the sauce in all of this, where, where the YMCA was. It was down the street from his house, where she took, you know, classes. And, and I think it's hard because we don't know. I don't know that area. I don't know if it's a small town. So does, does that connection go okay, everybody, you know, when you live in a small town in a small area, that's not hard to connect everybody. 
And that's true. But according to the Boston 25 News, John Sr., we didn't talk about this, but he had had a part-time job at the hospital, which was in Southbridge. And so when Molly would go to her YMCA swimming lessons for the lifeguard certification, she would walk from the YMCA to meet her dad if she was early or he was, you know, to. so she would actually walk by that area and stop at a coffee shop. So some people surmise, like, well, did she meet him at the coffee shop and kind of mention that she worked there? Like, gotcha. We just don't know. Like you said, it's a small area and we don't know, but that's another little connection that could or could not be something. Now, the other thing is Ronnie Sanger is a convicted murderer. So that's important because about a year after, according to records, about a year after Molly's disappearance, he had sold his home and moved to Florida. And that's where he actually murdered his girlfriend. She was 51 years old, Crystal Morrison. Now, before he killed her, she had claimed that he might have been involved in murders in Massachusetts. So that's a huge thing that if someone knew Crystal and knew of her telling them this and want to tell investigators as well, that maybe they can make some kind of connection. Mm -hmm. How did he kill Crystal? He stabbed her to death. Mm. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how Molly died. We don't have those details. So where's Rodney now? He has passed away. That's just so unfortunate. And you talk to Heather. I mean, I would think that would be the topper, like to have the person you think did it or could give you answers to die because that's sealed and shut. So then we also have Gerald Battistoni and he once lived in the Palmer area. And then he later did live in Ware, Massachusetts, which is also nearby. And he was a convicted rapist and he was sentenced in 2011. And he raped the daughter of the woman he was dating more than 100 times. It's just horrifying. I can't even imagine. And according to the Telegram and Gazette, the victim lived in Commons Pond Road, which is right there in Warren, you know, Warren, right nearby, and was living there at the time that Molly was abducted and murdered. So he was familiar with that area. And according to an interview that the Telegram and Gazette had done with his ex-wife, he knew that area because he used that road to travel back and forth to Warren from where. So, you know... Again, it's speculation, of course, but, you know, if he's abusing this woman, this woman's daughter that lives with him or is, you know, close to him in some way, shape or form, I mean, what to say he didn't have access to her that day and went after Molly. I mean, I don't know. You just, right. It's just, it's Well, horrifying. and it's always, you know, you have to consider, was it somebody that was just waiting? And I hate that we've learned so much about predators, but the fact that some just say, when the opportunity strikes, then they go for it. Some lie in wait. Molly's mom had said that when she dropped her off, that there was that car there and the man smoking in the car. And just the fact that internally she knew something was wrong. So did this man go down this dirt road to hang out and wait for children to swim and play? And so he could watch them and he just happened to see Molly And then thought, okay, I'll come back. And, you know, it's just crazy that sometimes these predators set their sights when they see certain people or just even an opportunity. The fact that they dissect that and say, okay, this is an opportunity. She's out here in a desolate area by yourself. And it's a perfect opportunity to to take advantage of someone. Exactly. Gerald died. He was 52 years old at the time of his death. And he actually died in 2014 while serving that 10 to 12 year sentence for raping that teenager in the 1990s. Okay, so that's two for two. The newest lead now, the newest named suspect, an officially named person came just last year in 2021. Okay, tell us about him. 
and that's Francis Frank Sumner Sr. He's the one that I thought resembled yes, the sketch. Yes, I was just going to say yes. You're the, the one that, and, and I kind of got the feeling that Heather thought that too. But again, you know, it's so hard to really know with all of these. But yes, I think that he really did too. So, what's the deal with him? Reiterate about Sumner. Now, again, Sumner is somebody that actually came up. He lived in the local area. And again, he's a convicted rapist and kidnapper. Yes. So this dude. And he's the one that owned and operated the car repair shops. He's known to lure somebody away from where they were. And here's the thing. Somebody who does something like that, who lures and rapes a 21-year-old woman that went in to get her car repaired, I just find it so hard to believe this guy had never did it prior to that, that there can't be other victims that are out there. Exactly. And that's what's so sad and and, and why I think Heather says it's important, because as we've said, you know, he also died in 2016. So so three for three. Yes. The three top suspects. That we know. Right. That are on the radar. Again, it could be anybody else out there that hasn't been named or known and and possibly. But and again, that's why I talked to Heather, because I think you and I, especially doing these, we all want to see justice and see physically that person. And that's why I said to Heather, you know, it's When the suspect dies, it's just so disheartening that you don't get to see justice. But I also think we have to say it from a different level in a different way that it's important to the family to still investigate and have that answer of who it was ultimately, whether they see the justice or not, you know, there's justice in other ways. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, the family still wants answers. There's still that burning desire and there is nobody that dies on this earth and that, that hasn't told somebody something or that somebody around them doesn't have information. And and a lot of times we've heard of people that have said, well, it just didn't seem important. You know, why involve myself in this after somebody's already died? But I will tell you right now, talking to families, the hurt, the pain, and I don't want to say there's closure when they find who did it. And so often people, they always tell us closure is not the word. But I do think that there is a certain piece of the puzzle that's in place. They can have in their mind what happened, who did it. You know, they can try to get on with the rest of their life to the best of their ability until they get to see them again. It's been a lot, you know, on the family and and the father, John. John and Maggie, in the beginning, of course, headed up all of this. And then John's health, he had a stroke and, you know, they're getting older now. And Heather just has really picked up that flame to carry it through. And she's an extremely intelligent woman. She's working in the school systems and she knows a lot and will never give up this fight for her sister and legislation for others as well. So that's important to know too, is Heather's, she has that bill, which is very important that is going to be working. So if you're in the Massachusetts area, the Molly Bish Foundation, which is um, mollybishfoundation.com has a list of numbers you can call for your local legislator and ask them to support S. 1595, which is an act that's permitting familial searching and partial DNA matches and investigations of certain unsolved crimes. I'm all about that. And, you know, I know that they have to get this law right because it also could step on other people's rights. I understand that. But I do think this is something that we need to pour our efforts into. You and I talk about all the time. It kills me when one of the detectives tells us that, oh, we turned that in. We turned in evidence and it took five years and three more girls getting murdered or raped before the information came back. There's so many things in our system that we could help and that our effort, things that this should be a priority for all of us. And so many people, I think that's why we listen to true crime and want to know the stories and what's happened. And so many people say, what can I do to help? 
And this is a great way to support those bills that can help get answers for the victims and the victims' families in that sense. And then also Heather has begun using TikTok to help spread awareness about Molly's case. And she's asking anyone with information about Frank Sumner to come forward. And apparently on her TikToks too, she shows some evidence of some things that have been stored as evidence so she can show people. You can have a visual and actually get to know Heather a little bit better and see her passion for wanting her sisters. And how do they find her? She is Heather Bish on TikTok. All right, perfect. Well, guys, this was... This case, like all of them, are just heartbreaking, but we really hope that by doing this, that something will come out of it. Um, If you guys know something, then please come forward. But in the very least, if you could please just help us to share this and hopefully get answers and ultimately deal justice for Molly. Thank you guys for listening and join us next time on Dealing Justice. We are now on a bi-weekly schedule, dropping episodes every other Friday. And we want to thank Liz Morgan PR for being absolutely amazing and sponsoring us. Liz Morgan PR is a boutique public relations firm specializing in media relations, event planning, and communication strategy. Founder, president, and friend, Liz Morgan is a creative, award-winning public relations professional with one goal in mind, getting her clients buzz. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Dealing Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubisak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you for listening and join us next time on Dealing Justice. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.